recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Europe. Today is Sunday, July 19th, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for being here. Today we're going to talk about early two seed line. And once again, I have Sven Longshanks with me to, to, to assist in our discussion. Hello, Sven. Hello, Bill. Praise Yahweh. I'm uh, pleased to be here as well. Praise Yahweh. Thanks for being here. It was said, and it's been often said, I should say, it's been often said that two seed line teaching is new. It's novel. It's a contrivance. It's a recent invention from Scripture. Nothing could be further from the truth. It certainly is not. Instead, the true Christianity of the apostles was persecuted from the very beginning. It was persecuted, and very few of the writings of their immediate successors, their immediate students, have survived. Some, however, have survived, and we will see hints of two seed line teachings and many explicit statements in some of those writings. Writings from men such as Justin Martyr and Ignatius, Ignatius of Antioch, both men of the late 1st and very early 2nd centuries, and even Tertullian. However, Clement of Alexandria was a universalist. Clement of Alexandria misused the phrase brood of vipers. He did it in his Pedagogus. He did it in the Stromata. And then he did it in his Exhortation to the Heathen, which I'm going to quote, where he ascertained that one could go from being of the brood of vipers to being a man of God simply by accepting Christ. And he said, again, therefore, some venomous and false hypocrites who plotted against righteousness, he once called a brood of vipers, but even if one of those serpents is willing to repent and follows the word, he then becomes a man of God. In that, we basically see the same attitude that the Jews had, where they baptized men and converted them to being Israelites in their converts of the first and second centuries B.C., Christ said of those people that when the Jews converted a man, they made him twice fold the child of hell. We would assert that Clement of Alexandria, his universalism and his perversion of the scriptures, made him twice fold the child of hell. The universalist position of scripture was expressed to a great extent by Clement of Alexandria, and after him it was continued by his student Origen. Origen was another Alexandrian. And then by Eusebius. By the time of Eusebius, it seems to be the only position that Eusebius could imagine. Although Eusebius also neglected to mention at least some of his own theological opponents men such as Methodius of Olympus, 
whom we may have an opportunity to discuss here later on. In a letter from Origen to Africanus about the history of Susanna, in part nine of his letter, Origen insisted that the story of Susanna was removed from the scriptures. And that is true, but he did not attribute the removal properly. He says, wherefore I think no other supposition is possible than that they who had the reputation of wisdom and the rulers and the elders took away from the people every passage which might bring them into discredit among the people. We need not wonder, then, if this history of the evil device of the licentious elders against Susanna is true, but was concealed and removed from the scriptures by men themselves not very far removed from the council of these elders. Now, if we read Susanna, Daniel himself didn't simply blame the licentiousness on elders. Daniel attributed the behavior of these proto-rabbis to the fact that they are the seed of Canaan and not of Judah. They were men of the Canaanites who were posing as men of Judah. We would assert that for this reason, the story of Susanna was oppressed by early Jews, who were indeed the seed of Canaan themselves, as the histories of Josephus and the New Testament attest. Origen seems confused as to the nature of demons, where sometimes he seems to admit that they are human. We will see that Justin Martyr certainly upheld the demons were in the form of humans. Volume 4 of the Ante Nicene Fathers, in Origen's writing against Celsus, at the very end of Book 7, he says that demons are scattered, as it were, in troops in different parts of the earth. Then in Book 3, Chapter 32 of Against Celsus, he says, we have to answer that probably certain wicked demons contrived that such statements should be committed to writing, speaking about certain of what he considered to be false doctrines. But Origen was a universalist, and that is clear in much of his writing, especially in Origen de Principis, Chapter 5, on Rational Natures. I will not quote it here. But Origen was also a futurist, insisting on a future Antichrist rather than the earthly Antichrists of the Apostle John. And we would assert that those two ideas, the idea that the Antichrist won't be manifest until some point in the future, and the idea of universalism go hand in hand. And wherever we see one, we see the other. We see it in Origen, and we see it in Clement. And we also see it in Irenaeus, and the writing and theology of the 3rd century Gallic bishop Irenaeus was also patterned to a great degree after that of Clement and Origen.
In contrast, the Apostle John believed that the Antichrists were people walking among us, and he makes that profession in his epistles. The Apostles Jude and Peter both agreed with John, although they used different terms. We won't elucidate the apostolic writings here today, but we will show that there were early Christian writers, namely Justin Mater and Tertullian, who agreed with the apostles. However, by the time of Eusebius, when the doctrines of the universal Catholic Church were formed, those writings were ignored, suppressed, discarded. They simply weren't counted when church doctrine was formulated. So 2C line, or what we call 2C line today, was forgotten by the medieval church. Clifton Emmerheiser has a, um, a quote on his website. From the Celtic Church in Britain, from Leslie Hardin, in a chapter entitled The Role of the Scriptures on page 48. And Clifton says that though Harding does not trace the Celtic Church back to the church set up at Glastonbury by Joseph of Arimathea, about five years after the Passion, he does, however, quite well after 400 AD and proficiently documents his material. In this chapter, he demonstrates the various methods of teaching used by the Celtic clergy. One must remember that the common people didn't have Bibles in those days, and a good many couldn't have read a Bible had they had one. So the clergy of that day had to use innovative methods of teaching what the Word said. One of those methods was a question-and-answer liturgy, of which the following is an authentic specimen, and it asks questions and it gives the answers. Who died but was never born? And the answer was Adam. Who gave milk but did not receive? And the answer was Eve. Who was born but did not die? And the answer was Elias and Enoch. Who was born twice and died once? And the answer was Jonas the prophet, who for three days and three nights prayed in the belly of the whale. He neither saw the heavens nor touched the earth. How many languages are there? And the answer was 72. Who spoke with a dog? And the answer was St. Peter, who spoke with an ass. And the answer was Balaam, the prophet. And the last one we will read here, but not the last one presented. Who was the first woman to commit adultery? And the answer was Eve with the serpent. That is the beginning of what we would consider 2C line teaching. Obviously, the early 
Celtic Church in Britain had that as an element of their catechism, if we can call it that. Tusi Light teaching has been suppressed, and we will demonstrate that today. Sven, do you have anything to add? Oh, yeah. I mean, I've been, um, I've been looking through the book of Adam and Eve. It's a conflict of Adam and Eve and, uh, with Satan. And this is a, a book, which is an apocryphal book, but it wasn't written by the Hebrews. It was written by, we don't know who, but they were part of the early Christian church. And the, the later parts of the book, they reckon, are from the 5th and 6th century, but the first two books are from the 3rd century. And the first, first two books were originally called the Cave of Treasures. And uh, this is from the, these, these were Coptic Christians that, that wrote this from the, from the Coptic Church, the Coptic Orthodox. And the church at that time, we've got confirmation from other church fathers that the church was the same at that time. What was being taught in Britain was exactly the same as was being taught in Antioch and being taught in uh, the Ethiopian church and in the Egyptian church. It's the same scriptures that they had and the same doctrines. I forget exactly who it was, but it says you would hear it in a different language, but exactly the same doctrines that were being taught. And if you look at... um, these, these books, two C line is right the way through the first first two books. And it doesn't say that Eve slept with the serpent, but right the way through it, it's, it makes a division between two seed lines. You've got um, the seed line that's descended from Seth or Shed, and you've got the seed line that's descended from Cain. And on their on their deathbeds, every one of Adam's descendants, like the commandment that he gives to his children is that they must have nothing whatsoever to do with Cain. This is the most important thing, um, the most important teaching that, that's passed down to the next generation. And I've got some of them here quoted, which, I, which I'll just read out. Sever thy children and thy children's children from Cain's children. Do not let them ever mix with those, nor come near them either in their words or deed. Uh, I've got some more here. Make no fellowship with the children of Cain, the murderer and sinner who killed his brother. For ye know, children, that we flee from him and from all his sin with all our might. And it tells you a bit more about Cain. It says, Cain had a large progeny, for they married frequently, being given to animal lusts, until the land below the mountain was filled with them. And further on in, in the in the book, the descendants of Shet end up leaving the mountain and they end up breeding with with the children of Cain. And this is what brings this is what brings the flood on. And it, it tells you that they began to go down from the holy mountain one after another and to mix with the children of Cain in foul fellowships. And uh, at one point, Jared, um, one of the descendants of Shed, he prays, but now I ask thee, God, to deliver me from this race. He's actually talking about about a race here. Uh, To Noah, uh, Noah's father says, "Guard, Guard thy children, command them, and make them understand not to have intercourse with the children of Cain, lest they perish with them. 
so right the way through it, it, it the first two books it, it the whole point of it is is that they must not mix with with Cain they must not mix their seed with Cain's seed and there's also a covenant God is quite clear that there's a covenant that God has with Adam right from the very start he says um, this is another quote I will send my word and save thee and thy seed. But as to thy father Adam, keep thou the commandment he gave thee, and sever thy seed from that of Cain, thy brother. So it's, it's quite clear that there's a, there's a covenant with one particular seed that comes from Adam, and that is excluded by Cain. Uh, there's another one here. At the end of the great five days and a half, concerning which I have made a promise to thee and thy father, I will send my word and save thee and thy seed. It's got nothing about all of mankind being saved. It, it's purely about the seed of Adam that, that, that gets saved. And after the flood, there are, um, there are other people in the land still. Uh, another bit which I picked up, it says, Cain had gone down to the land of dark soil, and his children had multiplied therein. Now, I don't know if that's, um, it could be a reference to dark skin. There's, there's another, uh, another quote where it tells you, Cain came down from the altar, his color changed, and he was of a woeful countenance. Now, that could be just describing him being, being uh, angry, or it could it could could be coming from an actual reference to, to his colour, his, his colour being, being, being black. There's also a reference to twins. And as, you know, we know that um, Martin teaches that uh, Cain and Abel were, were both in the womb at the same time. Now, it doesn't actually say this in this book, but twins do come into it. Um, but they say that uh, Cain was born along with a twin, and his twin was called Galua, which is pearl, which means white. And he was the opposite of his twin. So he, he, even though it's a female twin, it's white. So you've got this, you've got the uh, twin motif in there. Obviously, later on, you've, again, you've got um, uh, Jacob, Israel, and Esau, Edom. So you've got twins again: one evil one and, and one good one. It mentions the the wild beasts who are different from the beasts of the field. They're frightened of um, being killed by the beasts of the field for for having sinned. So the beasts of the field are prevented from uh, attacking them. And late, later on, you've got um, after the flood. It it talks about the Canaanites and the Canaanites also being a uh, also being cursed by God. But it doesn't explain why the Canaanites have actually been cursed by God. And and because Canaan in it, the son Canaan in it, um, he doesn't actually get cursed. And, and this is into the third book, which was written later on, which is different to the um, books that were written a few hundred years before. But it still has this, this interesting piece about the Canaanites. And it's talking about um, Judah, who married a Canaanite wife. And it says, then after this, Judah took to himself a wife whose name was Habwadiah, that means housewife, but in the law, her name was Suah. She was of a Canaanitish family, and Jacob's heart suffered much on that account. And he said to Judah, his son, who had married that wife, the God of Abraham and of Isaac will not allow the seed of this Canaanitish woman to mingle with my seed. 
some days after this, Sua bare three sons unto Judah, whose names were Ur, Onan, and Selah. And when Ur was grown up, Judah married him, his firstborn son, unto a woman named Tamar, daughter of Kedesh Levi. And Ur continued with her a long time, and behaved after the manner of the men of Sodom and Gomorrah. But God looked down upon his evil deeds and killed him. Then Judah married his son Onan to Tamar, saying, He shall raise seed unto his brother. But him also did God kill because of his evil deeds, on account of Jacob's curse, that no Canaanitish seed should mingle with his own. So God would not let any of it mingle with that of Jacob the righteous. Therefore did Tamar go to Judah, her father-in-law, who had intercourse with her, not knowing she was his son's wife, and she bare unto him twins, Pharez and Zerah. Now that, um, that explanation of those events which happened in the Old Testament, the Old Testament does not give that explanation for those events. You know, it doesn't point out that it was because it, it, this woman was, it was a Canaanitish woman um, that this happened. And, and their church teaching, or today's church teaching, is um, that Onan was killed for the sin of Onanism. And it doesn't mention this bit that no Canaanitish seed should mingle with, with the seed of, um, of Judah. But this is, you know, this is just pure um, two-seed line teaching, Christian identity teaching here. And this was written by the people in the third, third to sixth century church, when the church was uh, all one. So th this isn't, um, you know, this isn't, doc this isn't scripture, but this is, this was their interpretation of the scripture, along with the folklore of the time. Exactly. So, it, it, it really is clear, isn't it? It demonstrates how early Christians had interpreted scripture. There's no doubt. Even if we we can't accept it as canonical as canonical canonical scripture, we can un use it to understand how these early Christians interpreted the scripture. That there was more than one interpretation which was inevitable. That that the most people examining the early Christian writers make the wrong assumption that the conclusions which settled into early Catholic Church doctrine were the inevitable con and correct conclusions. In, in any respect, they certainly were not. They were the popular conclusions which were politically expedient. Clement of Alexander, the Universalist, Origen, the Universalist, Eusebius, the Universalist, these men produced the popular writings that were politically expedient to the growth of a church within the empire. These were not true Christian teachings. I'm going to um, read a couple of apocryphal things. And, and for Maccabees is considered, even though it's, it, it has its name after the book of Maccabees, it's still not really a part of the book of Maccabees, and it's considered an early Christian writing. It's never really been considered a Jewish writing. And speaking about a persecution which happened under the tyrant, 
Antiochus, which would have been in the middle of the second century BC. We read in 4 Maccabees chapter 18, from verse 7, And the righteous mother of seven children spoke also as follows to her offspring. I was a pure virgin and went not beyond my father's house, but I took care of the built-up rib. No destroyer of the desert nor ravisher of the plain injured me, nor did the destructive, destructive deceitful snake make spoil of my chaste virginity, and I remained with my husband during the period of my prime. The references to the built-up rib and to the snake and to the chaste virginity are all allusions to Genesis chapter 3, which show us how these early Christians interpreted the scriptures of Genesis chapter 3. It, it's that simple. It's not canonical scripture, but it helps us to interpret the canonical scripture. And the same thing can be said of another source, and, and that's the Protevangelion of James, and neither is that canonical, but it does show us, it was written by early Christians and shows us how they interpreted Genesis chapter 3, where in its 10th chapter it says, and when her sixth month was come, speaking of Mary, the mother of Christ, Joseph returned from his building houses abroad, which was his trade, and entering into the house, found the virgin grown big. Then smiting upon his face, he said, with what face can I look up to the Lord my God? Or what shall I co say concerning this young woman? For I received her a virgin out of the temple of the Lord my God and have not preserved her such. He came home, he found that his wife was pregnant, and he thought that some great sin occurred. And he says, who has thus deceived me? Who has committed this evil in my house? and seducing the virgin from me has defiled her. And he says, is not the history of Adam exactly accomplished in me? For in the very instant of his glory, of his glory, the serpent came and found Eve alone and seduced her, just after the same manner it has happened to me. So we see exactly how these first century Christians interpreted the scripture of Genesis 3. Now, as you say that the, um, the, the early Christian writers of this literature that's named after Enoch and, and the book of Adam and Eve, they esteemed these angels of the Genesis chapter 6 event to be simply people not mystical beings floating through the air with wings. They're people. And, and that's what even a lot of identity Christians, that's where they fail, is by insisting on a literal interpretation of a lot of this poetic and allegorical language which we see in the book of Genesis. If we imagine the serpent and, and, and the fallen angels to be in rebellion to God and fallen out of heaven and cast out to earth. And then we see in Genesis chapter 6 that the sons of God, which 
and, and I have papers on my site which um, demonstrate that the original reading of that may have indeed been sons of heaven, that the Masoretic text has a corruption in Genesis 6, that it should say sons of heaven. If the sons of heaven came down and went into the daughters of men, that doesn't mean that they necessarily floated down from the clouds. They simply came down into our land from their land and got our wives and, and started seducing or raping or, or coupling with them. That's all that means. That's all that's describing. It's just using very poetic language in order to identify and, and allegorical language in order to identify the parties involved. But that doesn't mean that we have to accept it literally as referring to angels from space. Well, there's a bit about it. Um, there's, there's a bit about that in, in the book of um, Adam and Eve. I mean, they, they interpret that as, as being, it was the sons of, um, sons of Shet, it was the sons of Adam with the, with the sons of God. And it, the daughters of men were the, were the, the daughters of Cain. It goes into great detail about the way that these daughters of Cain seduced the, the sons of Adam. And once the sons of Adam were, were off the mountain, as it were, once they had bred with them, they could never get back onto the mountain again. I mean, the mountain is an, is an allegory for the race. And once they had race mixed with this offspring of Cain, they could never get back to being Adamites ever again. That was it. They were lost forever. So it was so important to um, keep, keep their seed. Sure. That shows that early Christians had pragmatic methods of interpreting these scriptures, where the mystical methods of interpreting these scriptures are what was passed down from the Roman Catholic Church, and the mystical methods of interpreting these scriptures separate us from the reality of facts that these events represent race-mixing events that are odious to our God. There are, in early Christian writings, other pragmatic interpretations of these scriptures. And outside of those that we see in the apostles, John, Peter, and Jude, and, and even Paul, and their interpretations, and, and their epistles. We have Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr was a Christian apologist who wrote in the mid-2nd century A.D. He was born around 100 A.D. in Judea. He died around 165. He was not a Judean. Even though he was born in Judea, he was of Greek and Roman ethnicity. If we read only parts of Justin Martyr, without considering everything he said, we may be led to believe that he was a universalist. And I'll give an example of that in, in um, the first apology of Justin in chapter 28, where he talks about God's care for man. And he says, and I quote, For among us, the prince of the wicked spirits is called the serpent and Satan, and the devil. And you can learn by looking into our writings, as you can learn, I'm sorry, and that he would be sent into the fire with his host and the men who follow him. 
and would be punished for an endless duration, Christ foretold. For the reason why God has delayed to do this is his regard for the human race. For he foreknows that some are to be saved by repentance, some even that are perhaps not yet born. In the beginning, he made the human race with the power of thought and of choosing the truth and doing right, so that all men are without excuse before God, for they have been born rational and contemplative. And if anyone disbelieves that God cares for these things, he will thereby either insinuate that God does not exist, or he will assert that though he exists, he delights in vice, or exists like a stone, and that neither virtue nor vice are anything. This is almost like he's addressing the Sadducees, actually. But only in the opinion of men, these things are reckoned good or evil. And this is the greatest profanity and wickedness. If we understood the beliefs of the Sadducees, we would understand that Justin was addressing very similar beliefs there. But if we continue reading Justin Moder, we will learn that not all two-legged creatures were considered human or men by Justin Moder. So we can't just take this section that I just read from his first apology and imagine that Justin was a universalist. This is from the second apology of Justin, from chapter 5, how the angels transgressed. And I quote, But if this idea take possession of someone, that if we acknowledge God as our helper, we should not, as we say, be oppressed and persecuted by the wicked, this, too, I will solve. God, when he had made the whole world and subjected things earthly to man and arranged the heavenly elements for the increase of fruits and rotation of the seasons and appointed his divine law for these things, also he evidently made for man, committed the care of, to the care of man and of all things under heaven to angels whom he had appointed over them. But the angels transgressed this appointment and were captivated by love of women and begat children who are those that are called demons. And besides, they afterwards subdued the human race to themselves. Now, if we look at the um, Sumerian, Babylonian tales and inscriptions and myths, we'll see that they believed that their kings had come to be Gilgamesh and, and, and Kidu and others of their kings, had come to be exactly as Justin is telling us, by the angels who had gone, into, in, gone in and, and seduced Adamic women and created giants. So Justin is telling us the same thing in different language. They afterwards subdued the human race to themselves, partly by magical writings and partly by fears and the punishments they occasioned, and partly by teaching them to offer sacrifices and incense and libations. This is the same thing Paul taught, that the offspring of the fallen angels were responsible for all of the idolatrous religions. And many of the early church writers had upheld that same belief. 
and partly by teaching them to offer sacrifices and incense and libations, of which things they stood in need after they were enslaved by lustful passions. And among men. Now, these are the offspring of what, what Justin sees as angels and women. And these are demons in Justin's own words. And he says, among men they sowed murders, wars, adulteries, intemperate deeds, and all wickedness. Whence also the poets and mythologists, he's referring to the Greek classical poets, not knowing that it was the angels and those demons who had begotten, who had been begotten by them that did these things to men and women and cities and nations which they related, ascribed them to God himself and to those who were accounted to be his very offspring and to the offspring of those who were called his brother. Neptune and Pluto, and to the children again of these their offspring, for whatever name each of the angels had given to himself and his children, by that name he called them. So Justin is telling us that the world's false religions and that these people, these men, whom he calls demons, roam among us, live among us, and cause all of these troubles in the ancient world. They are demons. They're not what he would consider the human race or humans. So we see in, justice, in Justin Motter's mind, demons are men born among us who were the result of the human unions described in Genesis between women and the so-called angels. But there's even more to it than that. From the other works of Justin Martyr, from something called the Dialogue of Justin, philosopher and martyr with Trifo, or Trifo, a Jew, from chapter 4, which was titled, The Soul of Itself Cannot See God. And this is a dialogue, so we'll go back and forth. And what do those suffer who are judged to be unworthy of this spectacle, said he, meaning Trifo. They are imprisoned in the bodies of certain wild beasts. This is their punishment. Now, that was Justin's answer to those who are unworthy of the sight of God, of the resurrection, of, of salvation. They are imprisoned in the bodies of certain wild beasts. And this is their punishment. Well, Justin says later that souls do not transmigrate into other bodies and that souls come into being with the body. So if he's saying that these people who are unworthy are those who are imprisoned in the bodies of certain wild beasts and that that is their punishment, he's really only giving his interpretation of the words of the Apostle Jude, who called those who were gone in the way of Cain and after the error of Balaam, in other words, those who were race mixed, who called them natural brute beasts, 
clouds without water, meaning that they don't have the Spirit of God. The Apostle Peter, speaking of those same people who had infiltrated and taught false doctrines to the children of Israel, as Jude also called them infiltrators and the authors of heresies. Peter called them natural brute beasts. made to be taken and destroyed. Justin Motter is telling us the same thing about these people whom he calls demons, who are the products of race mixing. So not only are demons people, but evil spirits which are locked in the bodies of wild beasts who are also evidently people, as Peter and Jude both say, that they dine together with us and that they are spots in our feasts of charity. This, um, this attitude isn't simply passing in the writing of Justin Water. It is rather persistent. And he says in... Um, Chapter 79 of his same dialogue of Justin with Trifo. On this, speaking of something that we're not presenting here, Trifo, who was somewhat angry, but respected the scriptures, as was manifest from his countenance, said to me, The utterances of God are holy, but your expositions are mere contrivances, as is plain from what has been explained by you. Nay, even blasphemies, for you assert that angels sinned and revolted from, from God. And then Justin gives his answer, and he says, And I, wishing to get him to listen to me, answered in milder tones. Thus, I admire, sir, this piety of yours, and I pray that you may entertain the same disposition towards him to whom angels are recorded to minister, as Daniel says, for one like the Son of Man is led to the Ancient of Days, and every kingdom is given to him forever and ever. But that you may know, sir, continued I, that it is not our audacity which has induced us to adopt this exposition which you reprehend. I shall give you evidence from Isaiah himself, for he affirms that evil angels have dwelt and do dwell in Tanis, in Egypt. These are his words. Woe to the rebellious children. Thus saith the Lord, you have taken counsel, but not through me, and made agreements, but not through my spirit, to add sins to sins, who have sinned in going down to Egypt, but they have not inquired at me, that they may be assisted by Pharaoh, and be covered with the shadow of the Egyptians. For the shadow of Pharaoh shall be a disgrace to you, and a reproach to those who trust in the Egyptians. For the princes in Tanis are evil angels. In vain will they labor for a people which will not profit them by assistance, but will be for a disgrace and a reproach to them. And further, Zechariah tells us, as you yourself have related, that the devil stood on the right hand of Joshua the priest to resist him. And the Lord said, 
the Lord who has taken Jerusalem, rebuke thee. And again, it is written in Job, as you yourself said, how that the angels came to stand before the Lord and the devil came with them. And we have it recorded by Moses in the beginning of Genesis that the serpent beguiled Eve and was cursed. And we know that in Egypt there were magicians who emulated the mighty power displayed by God through the faithful servant Moses. And you are aware that David said, the gods of the nations are demons. And Justin Martyr, with all of this, clearly exhibited a belief that these demons... These fallen angels were really people. And they were running Egypt at the time of Isaiah. Justin Motter clearly believed that there were men who were of the seed of the serpent and dwelt among us. It does all seem to go back to, to the serpent. Uh, I mean, there's another quote here. Um, uh, from the books of Adam and Eve, it's got the serpent speaking. And he says, Inasmuch as we do not know the day agreed upon with thee by God, nor the hour thou shalt be delivered, for that reason will we multiply war and murder upon thee and upon thy seed after thee. So it's saying we, it's plural straight away, it's plural, um, that they're going to wage war against this other seed line. This is the serpent referring to the curse where it says that there will be enmity put between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. That the modern day church tries to, well I don't know how they get away with it by saying that it's not a seed line. Um, that they say that there's just one devil and, that, and there is just one Christ. But it's clearly that wasn't taught at, at the beginning of the church. It's saying, we will multiply war and murder upon thee, and upon thy seed after thee. And the, the serpent himself, it says that he was a beast. He was not man, but he was the fairest of all the beasts. So I think that gives, gives us a clue as to um, what he was like. Uh, I think it greatly darkened over time. But the people that, um, others, notable people that went along with this, the, the, these um sons of God were, were men was apparently Augustine of Hippo Julius Africanus and John Chrysostom I you know, found out from, from looking their stuff up today in uh, Wikipedia that these people that went along, went along with it is uh, early church fathers so it all goes back to, to race mixing and it all goes back to the seed line and this, this is what was, what was being taught you know, I, mean, I don't. What I don't see, Bill, is how it how it changed from that. I mean, it, I suppose it was when the Romish Church took over, because if the church was all in communion, um, the Orthodox Church and the Celtic Church, the Celtic Church are teaching this in their liturgy, the um, Orthodox Egyptian Church are teaching this here, which you can see from the Book of Adam and Eve. You can see there with. Um, Justin the Martyr, that uh, he's teaching this this same interpretation. Um, how did it how did it get changed into something else? What, well, well, you know, what what century was that? 
I tried to summarize that in, in the beginning this afternoon. I'm sorry if I didn't make it clear enough. That, that Clement of Alexandria, that's the second century. And, and he had a very, it's the end of the second century perhaps. He had a very universalist position on all of this thing, on, on all, all of these things. He actually thought that you could move from the brood of vipers to being a man of God simply by accepting Christ, what, which is an idea that Christ himself and the apostles after him had all refuted. They challenged, consistently challenged, the brood of vipers to repent, and the people from the brood of vipers exhibited an abject failure to even grasp a need for repentance. And we see the same thing with Cain. God, in Genesis chapter 4, challenged Cain to do good, and in the next verse, Cain goes out and kills his brother because he couldn't possibly do good. These men, Clement of Alexandria, Origen, Eusebius of Caesarea, they were universalists that either, I can't say they purposely obscured the racial message of Scripture, but they certainly obscured it. They certainly did not ever understand it. On the other hand, Justin Martyr certainly seems to have understood it and expressed it many times. We have, in, in addition to... Um, Justin Mater, we have Tertullian. Now, Tertullian was a theological opponent of Clement of Alexandria and Origen, even though he lived a little after the time of Clement. He was a Christian apologist and a bishop of Carthage who wrote in the early 3rd century A.D., while a lot of the ideas of Clement and Origen were from Plato and other Greek philosophers. And if you read them, they quote Plato all the time and Socrates and other of the um, profane Greek philosophers. Tertullian, more properly, saw in the Greek philosophers the descendants of more ancient Old Testament heretics and apostates, and, and that is exactly how, even if they profess things which at times seem to be pious, that's exactly how I would view all of the Greek pagan philosophers. We read in them the, the philosophy of apostates. From Tertullian's Apology, chapter 22, he says, and we affirm, indeed, the existence of spiritual essences, nor is their name unfamiliar. The philosophers acknowledge there are demons, even though Justice, Justin Martyr told us these demons started out as physical demons. Socrates himself waiting on a demon's will. Why not? Since it is said an evil spirit attached itself specially to him even from his childhood, turning his mind, no doubt, from what was good. The poets are all acquainted with demons too. Even the ignorant, common people make frequent use of them in cursing. In fact, they call upon Satan, 
the demon chief in their execrations, as though from some instinctive soul knowledge of, of him. Plato also admits the existence of angels. The dealers in magic, no less, come forward as witnesses to the existence of both kinds of spirits. We are instructed, moreover, by our sacred books, how from certain angels who fell of their own free will, there sprang a more wicked demon brood, condemned of God, along with the authors of their race, and that chief we have referred to. So Tertullian taught to Seedline that there was a race of wicked demon brood among men. And he goes on to say, it will be for the present enough, however, that some account is given of their work. Their business is the ruin of mankind. So, from the very first, spiritual wickedness sought our destruction. Their great business, he said, is the ruin of mankind, a demon brood. who sprang from the fallen angels, the authors of their race. That's Tertullian. That's two seed line, without a doubt. He was following after Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr was following after Jude and Peter. Two seed line was taught in the early Christian church, but it was Clement of Alexandria, Origen, Irenaeus, and Eusebius of Caesarea, whose opinions prevailed to formulate church doctrine, and their opinions were universalist. <laughs> this um at the end in an appendix to works attributed to Tertullian entitled Five Books in Reply to Marcion. Even though these works are usually appended to the works of Tertullian, they're claimed to be of unknown authorship and they're in poetical form. And in this, we see the racial message of Christian identity certainly did persist to Tertullian's time. This is from Book 5, and it's titled, A General Reply to Sundry of Marcion's Heresies. The first book, did the enemy's words recall, in order which the senseless renegade composed and put forth lawlessly. Hence, too, touched briefly flesh's hope, Christ's victory, and false ways speciousness. The next does teach the law's conjoined mysteries, and what, in the new covenant, the one God has delivered. The third chose the race, created from freeborn mother, that's a reference to Sarah, 
to be ministers, sacred seers to the patriarchs, whom thou, O Christ, in number twice six out of all, meaning twelve tribes out of all the tribes of the earth, chosest whom thou, O Christ, in number twice six out of all chosest, meaning that Christ chose twelve tribes out of all, and with their names, the lustral times, the lustral times of our own elders noted, a recognition that these patriarchs are our own elders. Times preserved on record, showing in whose days appeared the author of this wickedness unknown, lawless, and roaming, a reference to Cain, cast forth with his brood. So <laughs> this two seed mine message certainly did persist until the time of Tertullian. This message that we get from original scriptures persisted until at least the time of Tertullian. Now, I've heard a lot of um, excellent quotes from John Chrysostoma, or John Goldenmouth, it actually means. I haven't um, read his work or, or what survives of his work at any length. I have to admit that. It, it's way past the time of my studies. I haven't gotten to it yet. I hope to one day, but I've heard that he said a lot of excellent things in identifying the Jews as the descendants of these devils, that these demons that the early Christian fathers talk about. And that's how the apostles of Christ would have identified them. And they did. This I'd like to know how the so I'd like to know how the how the Orthodox Church changed their changed their beliefs. So in this this book here, it's a the early Eastern Church, and this was their official beliefs. And, it, and it's quite clear that there's two two separate seed lines. There's there's one descended from Cain, one descended from Adam, and it, and it even it links the the Israelites with um, with the Greeks. As well, it, 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 it talks about the, the Greek writings. It says, um, the writers and the interpreters destroyed the writings, and the Hebrews changed the writings, and the Syrians and the Greeks rejected many sections of those writings, so that the children of the people could not ascertain their kindred. Neither could men or women hear who were their fathers or their mothers, except very few of them. And this was because of the laying waste of Jerusalem so that until this day, nothing certain is found among the writings, except the chief writings alone, which writings had been translated before the ruin of Jerusalem. So there, there was obviously lots more writings on this, and they could identify all the people, and, and it was all lost at the, at the sacking of Jerusalem. So they knew who they were, and, and they knew that the, the Greeks were descended from the, um, from the Israelites, the Hebrews, and it refers to them as Hebrews here rather than um, as Jews. It doesn't use the word word Jews in this book. 
So the, the, the records of, of who they actually were, they must have had going, going right the way back. And they knew this, this, this devilish race, demonic race, the Canite race. And the only, the only thing that I say, that there's a, there's, there's a, it doesn't actually link the, the descendants of Cain with the, um, with the Canaanites. But, they're, but the Canaanites are obviously under the same, the same curse, and they're not supposed to breed with them. Well, what doesn't actually say anything about it? I've often said that Tertullian himself, in his apology, and Minutius Felix, in his apologia on Christianity, both men, both early Christian writers, this is the um, late second and early third century, I believe, both men attributed all the persecutions of Christians to the Jews. It's very clear in the letters of Paul in the book of Acts that Paul talks about the hope of the 12 tribes of Israel and that he would deliver the message of the gospel to the nations of Europe on account of that hope. And Paul expresses this, these things in, in the closing chapters of Acts, and that that is the reason why the Jews wanted to destroy him. It, it's Esau. It, 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 it really is, as the Old Testament tells us, a struggle between Jacob and Esau. And Esau wants to steal the birthright that he forfeited back from Jacob, his brother. It's very clear that the overarching view from a spiritual perspective that that is true. And in the um, more realistic perspective, the more pragmatic perspective, we have the Jews instigating all of these persecutions of Christians for 300 years using and manipulating these Roman Empire emperors into persecuting Christians and assisting them in stomping out this new um, Christian doctrine. And to a large part, they succeeded where they were able to replace it with a Christianity that was universalist, and a universe, universalist Christianity would be much more amenable to the Jews. And that's what they did. And whether they were witting or unwitting doesn't matter. Eusebius of Caesarea, Clement, Origen, Irenaeus, and the rest of these universalist early Christian writers were unwitting or witting dupes for the Jews. They also created the, the Jews at Alexandria created a, all of, a lot of these so-called Gnostic gospels and, and Gnostic documents, and, and they created a whole lot of other um, false scriptures in order to, to try to discredit Christianity. They've been trying to destroy this message from the very beginning, and it's all part of that war of the two seeds of Genesis 
Well, it's like they're trying to uh, try to turn Christianity instead of it being um, purely for the descendants of Israel, instead of it being purely for one particular people, um, and and a continuation of of the covenant. It's like they tried to turn Christianity into what they had turned Judaism into, what Judaism was, proselytizing to all these different peoples and universalizing it. What they had done, they had universalized their their Talmudic beliefs at the time, that they were proselytizing, these Jews were, to all these different people, whereas Christianity is just for one particular people carrying on the covenant. And I think this is why the church, I mean, they, they called themselves Israel right at the beginning, didn't they? The, the church were, the, were Israel. Look um, at the error of Balaam, the error of Balaam, if you want me to pronounce it that way. Numbers chapters 24 and 25, where he taught Balak to throw a trap before the children of Israel. And, and, and he put out the daughters of Moab who seduced the children of Israel in, into their tents, right? So the children of Israel race mixed. The universalizing of Christianity would facilitate future race mixing, which is exactly what it did. If the Jews couldn't destroy it, they would infiltrate it and corrupt it so that they could once again get the sons of Israel to race mix. That's why Christianity would be made universal by the Jews. They had every reason to do it. It goes back to that time and time again, doesn't it? It's, it's race mixing is, is what they're trying to do. Absolutely. Right, right, back, right back to the beginning. So uh, another point that I found while, while researching this today was that um, all the early depictions that they uh, made of Cain, they, they used to depict him as a Jew with curly side locks and uh, with the bushy rabbi's beard. So, and this was like 500 years ago they were doing this. They were depicting um, Cain as being a Jew. And you, you go back even further, go back a thousand years, and you've got the, the, the depictions of the Jew um, as having a tail, as, as being Satan, descended from the devil. As Christ said that their, their father was the devil. So you've got all these these pointers that are still there, that were still there going up to just a few hundred years ago, saying that, um, that the Jews go, go back to Cain and, and go back to the devil. Not that uh, they're, they're the elder brother of Christianity or, or anything like that. I think if you, if you look at exactly what the Bible teaches about this, then you'll see that it is racial and that, it's, that Christianity is specifically for one people. So when you get Groups like the um, like the Celtic Church in Britain, when they set, when an emissary of the Pope arrives, and they say, "Well, we don't know any other authority other than the Scriptures. We follow the Scriptures, and that's it." Then they can't have been following anything other than Christian identity because they just followed the Scriptures entirely. And that the Church that they are in in um, allied with or in communion with is the Church that produced the Book of Adam and Eve, which talks about the two seed lines. And about this covenant being with, with the, specifically made with Adam for Christ to come in, in a certain amount of time. And, it, and until that time, there would be war. And, and afterwards, there's obviously been war. But until that time, their belief was that there was going to be war between these two different seed lines. And he'd even got the serpent saying that, that, he, that him and his, his seed are going to make war against the, the seed of Adam. So it, it's quite clear, I think, that 
that the, the original church was was preaching something close to what we're talking about today. What what we're what what we're discovering today, rediscovering basically, looking back to looking back to our fathers, that um, uh, the trying to think of trying to think of it. Is it um, Elijah, the testimony of Elijah, or something? Looking back to Elijah, who turned the hearts of the children back to the fathers. Well, well that meaning that we we'll, we'll look back to it. That that is, if we believe today to be the time of the end, and and we do, even though we don't know how long it's going to be, that's the only legitimate Christian ministry. Because Christ himself said that before he returns, we would be visited by the spirit of Elijah. When we see that he could have only been referring to Malachi chapter 4, out of all of the Old Testament writings, we see, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to the fathers. Therefore, only Christian identity is a valid Christian ministry in the world today. There's no other valid Christian ministry unless it's that ministry of Elijah, which is the last, the very last verses of the Old Testament. We're finding out uh, or rediscovering again today uh, our genealogies going going back to there, which appears to have been lost for a few years. The the um, all the ancient British historical records that go back to Brutus and, and Brutus being descended from Judah, and so the, the original Britons being descended from from Judah. And we're only just rediscovering that today, and yet they knew this. Um, Right back in the up until up, well up until about five hundred years ago, they they knew this, but they hadn't put it together with it being being descended from Judah. But I'm sure they must have known that at, at the time in the first and the second centuries that, that that's where they came from. That's why they they uh, became Christian because it was uh, they knew that it was for them and it was speaking about them. That's why they described themselves as, as Israel. I think is it Gildas or, or Ninius that. Um, Described the British people as, as Israel, and later on you've got the the um, Treaty of Arbroath, where the, where the Scots uh, give the amount of time that it's been since they came out in the Exodus with with Moses from Egypt. You've got in um, uh, in Ireland in their constitution, they talk about a covenant between their people and with God. It's all about this covenant, this covenant people, and the covenant that was made with us. To, to just hold on and, and, and keep rejecting it and keep yourself pure, keep your seed line pure, and uh, it'll be okay in the end. And that's the important thing. You've just got to keep your seed line pure above all else. Because once that's, if that goes, then that's it. You can't get back on the mountain again. That's the message in, that, um, in the whole of the first book of uh, the books of that conflict of Adam and Eve is, is don't ever leave the mountain. If you leave the mountain, you can't get back. Don't ever hold intercourse with with Cain. Now I thought it was talking about um, intercourse as in social intercourse, to, to, uh, no interaction with him. But it uses uh, intercourse in a sexual way for where it's talking about Judah with the Canaanites, 
So it, but it probably was meaning it in a sexual way when it was saying don't have, have intercourse with Cain, uh, with his children. And he even talks about these children of Cain, they're, they're, they're taught um, the metalworking and makeup and, and the painting of the flesh and, and all the bits that are in, uh, I forget which chapter it is in Genesis, so I think it's the fourth chapter, where it talks about, gives, gives the listing of the, of the children of Cain and what they what they learned to do. It was with, with the musical instruments and the makeup that, that they seduced the children of Adam. It's only Noah that, that kept his race pure. Only Noah that kept his race pure. And that, that's, that's the message that, that you get, is you, you've just got to keep, keep yourself pure, keep, keep, your, um, keep your race pure. Right, right the way through from from start to finish. So, if you if if you've got a church that claims to be following the Bible um, strictly, just just the scriptures, and that's what they were claiming to do in Britain, then it was Christian identity that they were following. And this is confirmation that it was Christian identity they're following by looking at the the, the work produced by the Eastern Church around the same time which has the same interpretation. Again, it's talking about these two, these two seed lines. So for me, that's confirmation of it, Bill. You know, that this is what they were teaching, not, not just in Britain, but right over there in Egypt, they were teaching the same thing. Like John Chrysostom said, you'll hear the same, the same teachings being discussed in Britain, but it will just be in a different tongue. Right. I want to close by quoting the... Um the Epistle of Ignatius to the Trallians. Now, now, Ignatius of Antioch lived until about 117 B.C., I'm sorry, A.D., making him one of the earliest of the post-apostolic Christian writers. Now, some scholars identify only about half of the letters attributed to him as valid, among which is the epistle to the Trallians and also the epistle to the Magnesians, which we may quote a passage from here. The, the, there are other scholars that doubt the validity of any of Ignatius's epistles. I wonder if they're not Jews. In any event, the epistles of Ignatius are certainly of great antiquity. And in chapter 11 of his epistle to the Trallians, he said, do you also avoid those wicked offshoots of his, and he's naming some of the false teachers of his time, Simon, his firstborn son, and Menander, and Basilides, and all of his wicked mob of followers, the worshipers of a man whom also the prophet Jeremiah pronounces accursed. Flee also the impure Nicolaitans, falsely so-called, who are lovers of pleasure and given to calumnious speeches. Avoid also the children of the evil one, Theodotus and Cleobulus, who produce death-bearing fruit, whereof, if anyone tastes, he instantly dies, and that not a mere temporary death, but one that shall endure forever. These men are not the planting of the Father, but are an accursed brood. And says the Lord, every, let every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted be rooted up. For if they had been branches of the Father, they would not have been enemies of the cross of Christ, but rather of those who 
killed the Lord of glory. But now, by denying the cross and being ashamed of the passion, they cover the transgression of the Jews, those fighters against God, those murderers of the Lord. For it were too little to style them merely murderers of the prophets. But Christ invites you to share in his immortality by his passion and resurrection inasmuch as you are his members. A careful examination of the language. You're his members when you're invited to share in his immortality. Before you believe him or not, you are his members. A careful examination of the epistles of Ignatius shows that he too believed in two seed lines because he believed that people were the members of Christ before they came to Christ and that people were the enemies of Christ. They were not branches of the Father or they would have come to Christ, but they weren't his branches in the first place, so they could not. From the epistle to the Magnesians, Ignatius wrote, it is absurd to profess Jesus Christ and to Judaize. For Christianity did not embrace Judaism, but Judaism, Christianity. In other words, Judaism is the innovation. The Old Testament was Christianity. The Jews embraced the Old Testament. That so every tongue which believes might be gathered unto God. Thank you for joining me, Sen. Thanks, Phil. Praise listening. We'll be here in two weeks. I don't know what the topic will be yet. I, I guess we will um, discuss it one day soon. Praise Yahweh. Thank you. And good night.